Church, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Again, during this Christmas season, we will depart from our regular exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at various passages over the next few weeks. And this morning, we're going to be primarily in Luke chapter 1 and using that as a launching pad to some other Glorious concepts that we find in the Word of God. Now, before we look at this text, might I say that one of the greatest proofs of the inspiration and the infallibility of Scripture is that of fulfilled prophecy. You'll not find prophecy in any other book, in any other religious book, not in the Koran, not in the Book of Mormon, not in the writings of, uh, of Charles Russell with the Jehovah's Witnesses, not with uh, Mary Baker Eddy in the Christian Science, not with Ellen White in the Seventh-day Adventist system, not with uh, Herbert W. Armstrong in the Worldwide Church of God, or even L. Ron Hubbard with Scientology. Wherever you go and you see other religious writings, you will find that something is missing there. Of course, there are many things missing, but one of the primary things that will be missing will be prophecy. And of course, it's easy to understand why. Because if you put something prophetic in a text and it didn't come true, then you would be in serious trouble. So the best thing to do if you're going to make up something is make sure you don't put anything in there that people can refute. And certainly these writings are not from God. God alone can predict the future because God alone is omniscient and omnipotent, able to pull off, shall we say, what he has predicted, what he has decreed. He is omnipotent and certainly he is sovereign over all of his creation. And one of the things that is fascinating among many as we study the word of God is that woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture is a scarlet thread of redemption. A thread of a lamb that someday must be slain. A savior that must come. A Messiah. One who will make atonement for the sins of the people. And it's fascinating to see this thread of a promise. A promise of a savior that will someday come. A Messiah that will deliver his people from the bondage of sin out of the kingdom of darkness. In fact, there are approximately 350 such prophecies found in the Old Testament. Scripture is full of these prophecies. In fact, it was for this reason that you will recall when Jesus was with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. He turned to them and he said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That, of course, being out of Luke 24. As we approach this Christmas season, a time when we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, when God became man, what I would like to do is examine, especially over the next few Sundays, the big picture of redemption and especially looking at some of the prophetic revelation that we see in Scripture concerning Christ, the Lamb that would come, the King of glory, as well as the unique role that the angels played in announcing this glorious coming of our Lord and the fulfillment of these many prophecies. So this morning and next morning, which will be the second part of what we will have this morning, I want to draw your attention to four angelic announcements surrounding the birth of Christ, as well as four different people to whom they announced these things, each proclaiming four unique fulfillments to Bible prophecy as well as, therefore, depicting Jesus in four different ways. And my desire, dear friends, is to do more than just impart biblical facts. But I want to help stir your hearts to the wonderful marvels of redemption and to cause us all to once again just kind of shake our heads in utter dismay as we reflect upon the miracle of Christmas and, and to be humbled 
by the reality of holding this word of the living God in our hands and understanding it a bit better and seeing what God has done to reveal himself to us through it, as well as to become convicted about the implications of all that we have in Scripture with respect to our life. So today, my prayer is that we get lost once again in the wonder of Jesus as we see him proclaimed in four ways through four angelic announcements. Let me give all four of them to you. We'll just get to the first two today. We're going to see Jesus as, first of all, the king priest. Jesus as the king priest. Secondly, Jesus as the son of God. Thirdly, as the savior from sin. And fourthly, Jesus as the glory of God. But this morning we want to begin with this wonderful story of the angel Gabriel that comes to Zacharias in Luke 1. And we will see not only the fulfillment of prophecy, but we will understand more about our precious Savior being depicted as the priest king. Before we look at this text in Luke 1, may I give you the context a bit? Ichabod, the Hebrew concept of the glory has departed had been written across the door, metaphorically speaking, of the temple some 400 years prior to what we are about to read. Because of sin, the glory had departed from the temple because of the sins of the people and their idolatry. And for 400 years, God has not spoken directly to his covenant people. The Jews continued to flounder in their ritualistic Judaism filled with legalism and hypocrisy and frustration. And some of them were still awaiting the Messianic kingdom. In fact, most of them were, but many of them were confused and frustrated. But a remnant of faithful worshipers of Yahweh still remained, those whose hearts were truly in love with God and worshipped him in righteousness, a godly people looking for their Messiah, their priest, their king. And suddenly now, after 400 years, God breaks the silence by sending his messenger, the angel Gabriel, which, by the way, means strong man of God. There's only two angels whose names are mentioned in the word of God, Michael and Gabriel. And he sends Gabriel now, the strong man of God, to a faithful priest serving in the temple, a man by the name of Zacharias. Well, let's look what the text has to say here as we go over it in a, in a rather general way to understand the essence of what God is saying to us. Beginning in verse 5 of Luke 1, follow along as I read. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, it came about while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense of offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, how shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel 
answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. Now, let's stop there. Here's what's going on. If we go back, for example, to First Chronicles 24, we will discover or we would discover that there are 24 divisions of temple priests and each division would serve in the temple in Jerusalem twice per year and sometimes for special occasions. And Zacharias here is in the division of Abijah, which would have been the eighth division. And both he and his, uh, his wife, Elizabeth, were from the priestly line of Aaron, which is significant, as you will see. And it's interesting in verse nine, we see that it that, that it was his lot now to come and to burn incense. By the way, God gave the precise formula and ingredients for the incense in Ezekiel chapter 30. You might recall that any variation of the ingredients meant death. And if you used it personally in any way, apart from the use in the holy place in the temple, it meant death. Uh, you will remember uh, Nadab and Abihu who were executed for violating this very command back in uh, Leviticus 10. So God is serious about his holiness, is he not? He is serious about it and uh, serious about our obedience. And we would all do well to remember. And so what would happen is a priest then would be selected for this most sacred act of, of service and worship. In fact, no priest was ever permitted to do this more than one time in their life. So this was a very, very special occasion for Zacharias. And certainly this would not go unnoticed by God in his timing when he sends Gabriel, as we will see. One of the greatest moments, no doubt, in his life. And so the way it would work is he would go into the holy place, which was a vestibule area right in front of the Holy of Holies. And the other people would be outside worshiping as well as some of the other priests praying. And inside this holy place, right in front of the veil of the of, of the Holy of Holies would be an altar where incense would burn perpetually. And the priest would go in, as Zacharias would have done, and stand just in front of the veil that divided the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And he would offer incense to the Lord at that time, every morning and every evening. And the, the fragrance of the incense was considered to be symbolic of the prayers of the people as they sought forgiveness for their sins and as they prayed for the Messiah to come. Now, how fitting it is that God would break upon this scene at this moment in redemptive history with his angelic messenger and suddenly begin the process of answering his prayers and the prayers of the people who waited outside. Now, if we were to study the story, we would see that Zechariah now is, is uh, told that his, that his wife, his aged wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And he's kind of, well, I'm not sure about this. And, and that, his, that his son is going to be, as we know, by the way, John the Baptist. And, and that he will go as a forerunner before him, referring to Jesus and the spirit and the power of Elijah. Which, by the way, in and of itself was a prophecy predicted over 400 years earlier in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. And now, in verse 18, we, we read about uh, Zacharias. Now he's doubting, you know, this whole thing. It's like, this is more than he can handle here all of a sudden. And, and the angel uh, in verse 19 answers him and says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, which is an amazing thought, isn't it? And I have been sent to, to speak to you and so on, so on. But, but since you, you, you did not believe my words, um, he basically says that you're not going to be able to speak. And so uh, 
That's exactly what happens when when it's over with. Zacharias comes out of the out of the holy place and the people were certainly wondering, wonder what's going on inside there. Normally, the priest would come out and, and, and give a blessing and the people were out there praying and wondering what's happened here. And uh, finally, he, he, he comes out and he's unable to speak and he's making signs. And they, th- they think, oh, my goodness, something's happened here. They, they, he must have had a vision. And we know that later on in Luke chapter one, months later, after their son was born, after uh, in fact, at the circumcision ceremony of the child, uh, we read that Zacharias writes the name of his son. They, they, they thought his name would be something to do with Zacharias. But he says, no, the son's name is going to be John. And um, immediately his tongue is loosed and he begins to praise God and and. Um, and we read that in what is called the Benedictus, which is the, the first word in the Latin translation of what Zacharias uh, says in verses 68 through 79, where he talks about how that he will be a prophet, referring to his son, a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways and so on. Now, here's what I want you to get. You're going to have to stick with me today because this is one of those sermons that's going to take you through a lot of scripture and a lot of deep theology. But if you grab a hold of it, even if you grab a hold of a little of it, it will stir your hearts as it has mine. Think of the angelic announcement now and what it fulfilled. We know in Malachi 3.1, again, a text written by the Spirit of God through the prophet Malachi some 400 years earlier, There we read, behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger, capital M, the messenger of the covenant, referring to Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so way back in Malachi three, God predicts that he's going to send a messenger. And this, of course, would have been John the Baptist that is going to be the forerunner of the messenger of the covenant, namely Jesus. Now, it was customary in the Near East for a forerunner or a herald to go before a coming king and to prepare the way, remove any obstacles that would be there. And if you read in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1 and through 2, we read that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, he goes on and it talks about how that it was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. Which, by the way, would have been a prophecy some 700 years before this this uh, particular scenario, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So here's the point. John the Baptist now is going to be the forerunner, the herald of the coming Messiah King, who is called the messenger of the covenant, which is all very priestly in its orientation. And certainly we know when Jesus did come, he established uh, his kingdom in the hearts of men and and part of his kingdom uh, was fulfilled at his first coming and it will be completely fulfilled at his second coming and so on. So Jesus will eventually come to reward and judge those who have been faithful to his covenantal promises. Now, it is significant that God breaks in, breaks his silence in the temple of Jerusalem, the place from which his glory had earlier departed some 400 years prior. He breaks into the temple once again into the holy place where there stands a faithful priest by the name of Zacharias. And this man is offering incense. And he tells him that your son is going to be the forerunner of the divine king priest that has been predicted, the one that will soon come. Imagine the excitement that must have been there with Zacharias. No doubt Zacharias being a priest and therefore being extremely familiar with the Old Testament, his mind would have gone back to a passage, for example, in Psalm 110. You don't need to turn there. It's a fascinating passage where it exalts Christ as both the holy king that will rule the world as well as the royal high priest who will someday build a glorious temple where the world will worship. The details of which, by the way, are in Ezekiel 40 through 48, that millennial temple, a time when Jesus when Jesus will reign as Messiah king in his millennial kingdom. But in Psalm 110, 
verse four. And again, I, I, I have no way of knowing for sure that Zacharias thought this, but I'm sure over time this text, as well as many others, came to his mind as the, Gabriel, as the, the angel Gabriel comes to him and makes this announcement. But in Psalm 110, verse four, God speaks through the psalmist uh, prophetically here, and he says, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Passage quoted, by the way, many years later by the writer of, of Hebrews in Hebrews 5, 6. So let me put this together for you. The angel comes from the throne of God, says that your son is going to be the forerunner now of the messenger of the covenant. And of course, this would have been uh, the priest uh, who comes after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you say, what in the world does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked, dear friends. Melchizedek was the king of pre-Israelite Jerusalem, the king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. It was Salem in the days of Abraham. And he was a priest of the true God, according to Genesis 14, verse 18. Abraham recognized this and paid tithes to him and received uh, blessings from him, all of which proved Melchizedek's superiority even to Abraham. And if we study the letter to the Hebrews, especially chapter 7, there we would discover that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood, which began in the days of Moses. Now, bear with me. The priesthood of Melchizedek was established many centuries before the priesthood of Aaron. And the priesthood of Melchizedek was, according to Hebrews 7, 3, unending, whereas that of Aaron's priesthood, the Levites, of which Zacharias now is a part, was ended in or actually ended in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed. The priesthood of the Levites or of the Aaronic priesthood was hereditary, but not so the priesthood of Melchizedek from which Jesus will come. So it's fascinating as we study the biblical record, we find that there is absolutely no genealogical record of Melchizedek's birth or of his death, all of which picture him as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and picture the priestly kingship of Christ. And again, think of this, Judah, I mean, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not of the tribe of Levi. And his priesthood, therefore, is superior to the law, which was the authority of the Levites. In fact, the Levitical system was replaced by a new priest who was the messenger of a new covenant because of a new sacrifice. Begin to see this great theology that God has woven through the tapestry of Scripture. Now, remember, the law of Moses and the Aaronic priesthood could never allow a person full access into the presence of God. There were never ending sacrifices required. And it is for that very reason that Jesus later said to the Jews who struggled under the weight of the old covenant and the Levitical priesthood, he says to them, no one comes to the father but through me. So the law, according to Hebrews 10, was only a shadow of the good things to come with Jesus and the new covenant. So if we were to go to Hebrews 7, we would understand better that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to that of the Levites in that it was universal. It was royal. It was righteous. It was peaceful and it was unending. Therefore, the priesthood of Christ is a superior priesthood. And ultimately, this will be the glorious outcome of Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, because in fact, to Zacharias, because in fact, what, Ga what Gabriel is doing now is coming in to this priest, offering prayers for the Messiah to come, this Levitical priest that traces his roots all the way back to Aaron and tells him that your wife, Elizabeth, though she is old, is going to bear a son who is the forerunner of the priest king, the messenger of the covenant. And so, in essence, he's saying your son will be the one prophesied in Malachi 3.1 as the messenger who would clear the way for the messenger of the covenant who will come to his temple. 
And if we were to go to Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, here's what we would read. Speaking of Jesus, a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, referring to Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all. When he offered up himself. Now, we have to pause for a moment and say, so what? Oh, how can I answer that briefly? May I say, dear friends, here's the so what. Don't you understand that in God's marvelous plan of redemption, all that Israel looked forward to, all that the sacrificial system pointed to, all that the prophets predicted, all of those things were fulfilled in Jesus. And I think of three benefits that immediately come to my mind as we think about Jesus as the priest king. If we were to go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, we read that having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. So when you say, so what? The first thing I would do to answer that is to say, here's one thing that we can we can think of as we think about these glorious truths. Because of Christ, we now rest in Christ. Our sins are are forgiven. You see, there were no seats in the temple because the work was never done until Christ came and said it is finished. And so, my friend, those of you that know and love Christ. The, the proper posture, if you will, of the Christian is to be seated. We can now sit down, not with respect to our sanctification. No, there our loins must remain girded there. We must remain vigilant. There's always a battle for sin, a, 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 a battle for righteousness. We're to wear the armor of God. We're at war. True, but not so. Catch this concerning our justification. Now, you see. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we can rest in the Lord. We can sit down. Our sins are forgiven once and for all. And we can therefore enter into the rest that is ours in Christ Jesus. And this, you see, is the grand theme of the angelic announcement that would cause Zacharias to rejoice. I also think because of, uh, of Hebrews 10, 13, that because of this, our enemies are someday going to be conquered. So when you when you ask me, well, so what? Well, not only can we rest in Christ, but dear friends, please understand that because of this, someday all of those who are the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the kingdom will be conquered. In Hebrews 10, 13, we read more of this great priest because it says this king priest, I should say, that he's waiting from that time onward until his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Now, this gives joy to my heart. Let's make this real practical. When the king priest comes, there will be no more tortures. There will be no more persecutions. There will be no more hideous, barbaric, brutal beheadings by devils that serve Satan. I rejoice in that, don't you? And if this isn't enough, because of all this, because of the priest king that came, we have access to God. We can now enter into his presence. In Hebrews 10 and verse 19, we read, therefore, brethren, in other words, in light of all these glorious truths, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what do we get to do? Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. You see, friends, because the veil is rent. Now, Jesus is there summoning, summoning us into the presence of God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What an unimaginable truth. A wonder of wonders. The hope that we have in Christ. So, 
After 400 years of silence, the loving faithfulness of God pursues his chosen ones again, and he sends his angelic servant Gabriel to proclaim these magnificent truths to his human servant Zacharias. So the first angelic announcement centers around that glorious theme of Jesus being our king priest. But secondly, the second announcement that we see that God gives us in his word is that of Gabriel appearing to Mary. Notice in Luke chapter 1 again in verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to the city in Galilee, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. With the angelic announcement to Zacharias, we see the theme of Jesus as the priest king. And now we see him as Jesus, the Son of God. Again, let me give you a bit of context here. The angel comes to this young teenager, probably 13, 14 years old. They married very young in those days. She was obviously a godly young woman. She loved the Lord. She loved his word. That is proven by what she said that is recorded in that great text called the Magnificat, which is, again, the first word of the Latin translation, beginning in verse 47 through verse 45. So this was a young teenager that knew doctrine. And by the way, if I can say parenthetically, I pray this constantly for our teens and I do all that I can. And I'm sure you parents are doing all that you can. I hope you are. But I challenge you young people to come out from the world and be separate. And you will have untold blessing for your reward, even as this young teenager did. And you can see that this young gal was not consumed with the things of the world, but she knew the word of God and she knew precisely what was going on when Gabriel came to her and spoke these wonderful truths. Now, it's also interesting that, again, we have another amazing fulfillment of prophecy in Gabriel's announcement. In verses 34 through 35, we see that, that, that Mary is confused and she says, hey, you know, how, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy off, offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now, again, this was predicted 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where the Spirit of God tells us through the prophet, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, inevitably, it comes up, why a virgin? And you hear all of this rancor out there today about the virgin birth and what a myth that was. Friends, if I can just digress here for a moment. Think of this. Here's why it had to be a virgin. Because God's holy justice could not be satisfied apart from a perfectly holy ransom. And had Mary's offspring been totally human, then he, it, that child would have been totally depraved, right? And therefore, could never have been the sacrifice for sin because that child would have grown up deserving the punishment it would have received. However, had Mary's offspring been totally divine, 
he would not have been able to die for man. You see, now catch this. The work of redemption demanded a theanthropon, a God man. It demanded one who would be supernaturally fused together by God, the human nature and the divine to form an, an indissoluble bond. You see, a man had to suffer. A human being had to suffer a punishment that only God could endure. So it required both. A man had to bear the punishment for us all as our representative. But only God could drink it to the dregs. A perfect, sinless man had to die, but there's no such thing unless God became a man. Human flesh had to go to the grave, yet only God could overcome the grave and and grant us salvation through imputed righteousness. So God had to do something. God had to make provision to become flesh so that he might also make us partakers of the divine nature and, and grant us his indwelling spirit. You see, neither man alone nor God alone would be able to accomplish this. Both the human and the divine natures had to be supernaturally woven together. That required a virgin. Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of man in order to be punished for sin. Yet he also had to be God in order to endure the sufferings for all of the elect. Now think of this. How can Christ be our faithful high priest, one who could sympathize with all our infirmities unless he was both God and man? It would be impossible. How can Christ be our mediator unless he, like Jacob's ladder, could bridge the infinite chasm between God and man? How could Christ be our king without first becoming united with us as a man? Yet only God could reign in our hearts and have dominion over our souls for eternity. You have to have both. The virgin birth, dear friends, is an incredibly wonderful doctrine. And it's no wonder that it has been relentlessly attacked by liberal heretics down through history. So think of this. The babe in the manger had to have been born a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man as well as the son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. God's holy, infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy, infinite ransom. Had there been any other way, had there been any easier way, one that had would have prevented him from sending his very son from the glories of heaven to suffer in such agony, surely the infinite mind of God would have conceived it. No, beloved, God could not deny his own justice. The incarnation of his son was the ineluctable, if I can use that word, necessity, one that he could not evade. A plan that he could not deny. Nothing but perfect righteousness could satisfy the penalty of violating perfect holiness. So God sends his messenger Gabriel from his throne room to proclaim this stunning fulfillment of prophecy. But note what else is amazing here in this announcement. In verse 30, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And then we have this glorious summary Frankly, a summary that, 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 that defines all of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. I mean, folks, this, these are staggering truths. And I stand before you this morning in fear and trembling as, as if we're on holy ground now and and because what we have before us are literally the, the, the words of God himself delivered through his angelic messenger, giving us a concise summary of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus did and all that Jesus is continuing to do and all that he will do. He says that he will be great. That was prophesied again in Psalm 110, 1 and 2. Where we read that he is going to sit, God says that he will sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. The Lord will stretch forth a strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of thine enemies. It's mentioned also prophetically in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, 
where we read that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So indeed, he will be great, but, he's, but Gabriel also says that he will be called the Son of the Most High. Affirming once again that Jesus is of the same essence as God Most High, El Elyon, which is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek term that is used here. You know, if you think about it, nobody can be higher than the highest, right? He is the highest. And he also says that the Lord God will give him a throne of his father, David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Which, again, is a fulfillment of another promise written even earlier than Isaiah back in 2 Samuel 7, where uh, God tells David that he is going to have a son that will reign forever. And that son, of course, would have been Jesus, proven through the genealogies of both Matthew as well as Luke. And again, if I can digress for a moment, friends, we've got to realize that we are serving the king of kings. We are not serving an elected politician. I don't know what it's like to somehow have allegiance to a king, an earthly king. I don't even really understand that in terms of a president, even though I respect uh, our the presidents, the, the authorities that God gives to us. I respect them at, at certain levels. But we've got to understand that what we are serving is something far beyond that. We're serving a priest king, the lover of our souls, our Messiah, our savior, our creator. And so when we read these glorious concepts, what Gabriel is announcing to Mary, we've got to think of it in terms of Christ as the son of God, the savior of the world, the coming king that now reigns in our hearts, but will someday reign on earth for a thousand years and then ultimately reign eternally. And so these words now summarize all of this redemptive history as they are given to Mary. One of my favorite musical works is that of George Frederick Handel and his Messiah. In fact, if you ever come to my study while I'm in study and you listen outside, probably just outside the door, because I don't have it up that loud, but it's loud enough to drown out the dogs and everything else that's going on outside. But you will hear most of the time the, the, the work of, of Handel. And I listen to other music as well, but especially Handel's Messiah. It is one of the world's greatest musical masterpieces composed by, by one of the most brilliant musicians that ever lived. In fact, Beethoven said of him, and I quote, To him I bow, I bend the knee, for Handel is the greatest, ablest composer that ever lived. A man, by the way, that uh, that obviously was divinely gifted by God and loved God and served him and knew the scriptures well. In fact, um, if you go to England, as I have, and you go into Westminster Abbey uh, over his over his grave there in Westminster Abbey stands a statue of him at work composing the Messiah. And if you look at at at, at the statue, you will see that on the score of, uh, of, of, of that particular statue where he's working uh, is open to the passage, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And a wonderful thought. In fact, many of the texts that we've gone over here in the last few minutes are found in the words of Handel's Messiah. And what I wanted to do, because it just struck me as I was thinking through these glorious concepts woven through the tapestry of Scripture, knowing that I would take you on such a journey today, I thought I would just share with you some of the titles of the specific movements within the Messiah that attest to these very truths. By the way, you can buy the little CDs of the Messiah at Walmart and different places. They're really cheap because there's no market for truth these days. They're in the little bend where you can get them for three or four bucks. What people want today are they want rap and rock and country and even a lot of the Christian music that is as shallow as water on a plate. So if you want to buy the Messiah, you can find it very cheaply. But yet within this glorious masterpiece, here are some of the titles 
Comfort ye my people. Every valley shall be exalted and the glory of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? Behold, a virgin shall conceive. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, the people that walked in darkness. For unto us a child is born. Glory to God in the highest. Behold the Lamb of God. He was despised and rejected of men. Surely he hath borne our griefs. All we like sheep have gone astray. All that see him laugh him to scorn. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. He that dwelleth in heaven. And then the next one you all remember. Hallelujah. Which would be the hallelujah chorus. Which by the way has in it that great line. And he shall reign forever and ever. Going on. He's got more that, that, that read like this. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The trumpet shall sound. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And on and on it goes. And I share this only with you to remind you that there have been and there will always be those who are profoundly impacted by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his great love for us, he has revealed to us these truths from Scripture that some have put to music. Now, as we begin to wrap up this morning, may I ask you, as we've reflected upon Jesus as the priest king, as we've reflected upon Jesus as the Son of God, what have you done with Jesus? I fear that for some the answer is nothing, really. I see some of you beginning to fidget. I know why. For some, the great mysteries of God that you've just heard proclaimed are meaningless, if not even boring. There's no real interest that you have in Christ. Your heart is cold towards Him. And might I say with all love and humility, but with utmost authority, if this is your heart, you know nothing of the King that I love and serve. And you know nothing of the kingdom that we will someday enter, those of us who do love him. And I challenge you to repent before it is too late. You know, it's hard to distinguish Christians from non-Christians these days. Many non-believers live outwardly moral lives. They attend church. They, they, they exhibit many noble, even Christian characteristics. And a lot of true Christians live outwardly sinful lives at times and but you know, there is one test, one test that will always give evidence of a truly transformed life. And that is, does a person have a longing for worship? Now, you say, well, what do you mean by worship? If you will indulge me for a moment, I will quote to you what I wrote in our mission statement regarding this very thing. And you can see this on our website. The concept of worship is largely misunderstood. For some, it evokes external images of ceremonies, rituals, liturgies, and holy vestments. While others see it as a state of emotional arousal stimulated by a combination of mood-altering music and preaching designed to induce some ecstatic experience. Unfortunately, such misconceptions are not only counterproductive to genuine worship, they are often unacceptable to God. Worship is not an activity, it is an attitude. Jesus said we are to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, John 4.24. A perfect blending of the subjective spirit regulated by the objective truth. It must be a heartfelt expression of spontaneous praise that flows naturally from the wellspring of a biblically informed mind without any need of manipulation. David put it this way, my heart overflows with a good theme, Psalm 45.1. I go on to say, genuine worship requires being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. A moment-by-moment -moment surrender to the will of God as He is revealed in Scripture. This is perfectly summarized in Paul's admonition in Colossians 3.16, to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Worship will naturally manifest itself in acts of sacrificial love, singing, giving, fellowship, prayer and righteous living. True worshipers will have a consuming adoration of the majesty and glory of God, an adoration that abhors drawing even the slightest attention to self. End of quote. Beloved, this is precisely the reaction that occurred in both Zacharias as well as Mary when they heard the announcement from the angel Gabriel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Zacharias responded after he could later on speak in Luke 1:68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has accomplished redemption for his people. And Mary later on responded, and you can read it in Luke 1, 46 and following. My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of this bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. You see, folks, this is the proper heart response to the Christ of Christmas. True Christians will always be marked by an adoration of Jesus Christ. They will have an awe of God and his glory. They will have an insatiable appetite for his word. They will never tire of truth and they will never run from it, no matter how convicting it might be. Because they will always be longing to be conformed more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not so with non-Christians. Oh, they might play church and they might do it for several years. They might even pretend to worship, even in a place where true worship occurs. But they won't be there long. They can't stand to be around those who worship in spirit and truth any more than Christians can stand to be around those who worship in hypocrisy and error. So it is my prayer, my dear Calvary Bible Church family, that this Christmas each of you will stand in awe of your redemption, the redemption that is ours through Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, and begin to see Him even now as Jesus, the priest king, as well as Jesus the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father, it is with great joy that we find ourselves into these marvelous passages that depict who You are and what You are up to in our lives. Lord, I pray that somehow these wonderful truths will cause us to live differently from this day forward. Lord, may this be more than just some exercise in understanding Bible theology, but Lord, may it move our hearts to holiness. And may we long to see You face to face and live in the light of such a coming. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.